Welcome to A Transforming Word with Pastor Bill Buffington. This program is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Inglewood. Today on A Transforming Word. We were headed to death. We were dead while we still live. God says now life is supposed to reign in me. What Christ has made available to me, it doesn't just give me the hope of eternal life. It should reign in my life right now. Believers are supposed to be walking in a different kind of victory. There should be a victory that we walk in now, in our life right now, that we're experiencing life now. Life eternal, life in fullness, life everlasting, life abundantly right now through what Christ has made available to us. God isn't there to just get you into heaven. He's so much more than that. Today, Pastor Bill's going to show you that God wants to be a part of your everyday life. You can walk with a new joy in your heart, knowing the God of the universe is watching after you and is on your side. You can walk in victory every day, knowing that He saved you from sin and has made you new. Your life should look different as evidence of God working in your heart and giving you a joy that nothing in the world can give. Now, here's Pastor Bill in the book of Romans chapter 5 for today's edition of A Transforming Word. God's hope doesn't disappoint. Now, your parents might tell you they're going to do something and then don't do it. Some of you women, your husband will promise you something and you hope for it and he don't come through. And so you hope in people you could be disappointed. You could be let down. I was really counting on you to keep your word. But the Lord says, my hope, my hope doesn't disappoint. I'm going to come through with everything I promise. And so I think that's important to note. His hope is not like the hope we might have in people. That's why we're not supposed to put our trust in man. Supposed to put our trust in the Lord. Because man can and will let you down, ultimately. The best of men let you down sometimes. But the Lord said, I never disappoint. And he says, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. One thing God has given every believer is the Holy Spirit. He says, my love has been poured out into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God says here, look, when we were without strength, that means when you didn't even have the power to do the right thing, you were lost. When you were lost and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you were without strength, it says in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And he's getting ready to make a point, right? He's showing us what God did for us when we weren't even thinking about him. And he's going to connect the dots and say, so now that you know him, how much more? Right. If Consider the weight of his love for you and me when we didn't even know him, when we weren't even. So think about when you were lost, whatever you were lost. in. don't think about it too long, but just think about it for a second. Whatever you were lost in, wherever you used to be, whatever you were out there doing, whatever mess you was in. God says at that time, just completely ungodly. Christ died for you. I died for you in that condition, your worst condition, your worst state. That's when Christ died for the ungodly. And he said, look. Scarcely for a righteous person would someone die. Maybe for somebody really good, somebody might dare to die. But you know you wasn't good. And I know I wasn't good. God says, but look, God's not like men. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. Now, while we were still sinners, Christ died. God said, I demonstrated my love. There's a demonstration of my love for you while you were in the worst condition you could be in. I died for you. And so as believers, we shouldn't really struggle with like knowing the love of God. We shouldn't be in a place where I don't know if God loves me because, and this is what happens to people. You know, we start creating requirements on God's love that are not biblical. 
I went out for this one job and I didn't get it. No, to get all these doors shut in my way. If God loved me, I would have had that job. You know, this thing happened to me when I was a kid. And if God loved me, how come he let that happen? And this person did this to me and that happened over there. And I got kicked out of that place. And if God loved me, how come this? Right. God demonstrates his own love towards you. So now while you were yet sinners and going to hell, Christ died for you to take you to heaven. He didn't promise every job that you wanted. He didn't promise every relationship would work out. He didn't promise that people wouldn't do you wrong on earth. So we create those sort of expectations on him that if you love me, you would do this. And God says, no, I'm telling you, this is my demonstration of love for you. I died for you. Kind of a bigger deal than the little stuff you're squabbling about, right? You're squabbling over, and it might not be a little deal. I don't want to belittle damaging things that have happened to people, but it is smaller in its effect. If somebody did something to me on earth, and I've had things done to me on earth that impacted my life. I had things done to me when I was a child that impacted my life. I've had things done to me over at different times that impacted my life in a negative way. But none of those things were going to take me to heaven or send me to hell. What Jesus did for me has the furthest impact. The thing that Christ did for me has the biggest impact. I am not going to hell anymore. I'm going to heaven because of what he did for me. And he did it when I was ungodly. That's the big deal. And so be careful that you don't create an unbiblical expectation of the love of God. And end up disappointing when God doesn't meet the expectation because it's not how he shows his love. Okay? God demonstrates his love in dying on the cross for sinners. How do I know God loved me? Jesus died for me. That's how I know. So how do you know God loved me? Well, because he gave me this job. He blessed me with a good family. No, no, no. I know God loves me because Jesus died for me. All those things are grace. Those things are extra. Those things are a blessing. But that's not how I know God loves me. I know God loves me because Jesus died for me, an ungodly human being, so I can go to heaven. That's how you know the love of God. Amen? Moving on now. So now he's building up the case of what God did for you when you were a wretch, right? Look at verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath to come. Now we got past and present. Verse 9, past tense, much more than having now been justified. That's in the past. I've been justified already by his blood. That's past tense. When I hear the future, we shall be saved from the wrath to come. And this shouldn't be belittled, right? The biggest problem every human being has is that you got wrath coming. Every non-believer, their biggest problem is not in this world. Their problem is in the next life. There's wrath that abides upon the ungodly because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. God is a righteous and just God. And there's wrath to be dealt out to those that don't know Christ, those that are unforgiven, those that stand before God without mercy, without forgiveness. Great white throne judgment. Revelation chapter 20. You can check it out. Wrath. The wrath of God is going to abide on many. And God's wrath is no joke. Just as amazing as God's love is when you look at it, the wrath of God is just as awesome. I sit there and meditate on hell and just get disturbed. This is the worst part about hell, you guys. The worst part about hell is the best part about heaven. What's the best part about heaven? Is that it's never going to end forever. I'm going to be with the Lord, no sin nature, sin forgiven, no tears, no sorrow, no suffering. Now, all that stuff sounds great, but what if it was for a month? What if it was until you messed up? That wouldn't be great, right? What if I still had a sin nature? Like, what's great about heaven is that it's in it forever and ever and ever. I never mess up. I never sin again. I never want to sin again. I never mess up. I never make a mistake. I'm never getting kicked out once I get there. That's what's awesome about heaven. Well, it's the same thing that's awesome about heaven. It's awful about hell. They're never getting out. It's never going to end. There's a heaviness to that, right? It's a place of torment, outer darkness, weeping and wailing, gnashing of teeth. It was created to punish Satan and his angels. The initial goal of hell was a place of torment for Satan and the third of the demon angel that fell with him when he left heaven. That was the initial game plan for it but all those that reject Christ will also go there and just consider the different characteristics of hell outer darkness 
You ain't gonna be looking around seeing people weeping. People in hell are weeping and wailing and gnashing. They're there so sorry that they are there. People in hell have thought life. They can remember it. I think the most tormentous thing in hell outside of the flames are gonna be the remembrance of every opportunity you had to not be here. I think the message is going to play back in your mind. Those opportunities are going to play back in your mind. Those times where God spoke to you to turn around and going to play back and they're going to just be there and it's never going to end forever and ever. There'll never be a moment in hell of relief. It's not like on earth where you kind of can get numb to pain after a while. It's just going to be excruciating forever and ever and ever and ever. And God says, I desire that all would repent, right? Second Peter 3, nine. God says, my desire is that all would turn around, that all would repent and be forgiven. God doesn't want anybody to end up there, but that's the reality. So when he says here, that we've been justified by his blood and we have been saved from the wrath to come. I mean, we should be thankful for that, but that should also motivate our evangelism. That I've been saved from the wrath to come, but not everybody I know has. And look at your neighbors. Just look at the people that you know in your life that wrath abides on them and care about that enough to speak up. I can't make nobody get saved, but I can tell you. I got some neighbors that I'm working on right now, and that's what I think. I look at them, and I think, man, I'll say this to myself. This couple that comes down the street, young couple, and um, I got a few people that walk by smoking blunts in front of my house every morning, like clockwork, blunt time. I go out there to walk the dog at blunt time. That's conversation time for me, and I'm talking to them, and I'm looking. I just got to tell myself they're lost. They don't know the Lord, but this, God loves them. He loves ungodly people. I don't go up to them with a stained face. Oh, you're going to smoke that? You know, I don't do that to them. I go up recognizing they don't know the Lord, man, but he loves them. And I'm looking for a way to communicate God loves you. And I'll share it with them and talk to them. And, you know, BJ is my witnessing buddy. You know, for whatever reason, I think because he's a little kid, but he talk a lot. We'll send him. He done been to all the women's house on our block. All the older ladies that live alone. Everybody, where's BJ at? You know, and he, I'll take him. So he opened up some doors of opportunity for us to witness. And the one girl, her boyfriend name is DJ. So she sees him. Oh, and we're little DJ. I know he's BJ. But that he done made friends or whatever. So, you know, these are people that I'm looking at and I'm saying, man, this is their reality right now, but God could change it just like he did it for me. And I can look at what they're doing and how they're behaving and how they're living. And God says, man, tell them about me. Tell them what I did for them. Share it with them. I don't know who else they have in their life that's going to tell it to them. So I need to be the one. So this should make us thankful. It should impact our worship and our surrender and our thankfulness to the Lord. It should also impact our evangelism. God, because I know what you've done for me, I just got to be willing to talk to people and share it because that's God's method of getting this out is that broken vessels would just let this pour through to other people that need to hear it. And so moving on now, look at verse 10. It says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so now he's beginning to make the comparison. Look, when we were enemies that we were reconciled to God through his death of his son, how much more now that we've been reconciled, now that we're God's kids, we're going to be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. One thing Jesus has done for us is brought about reconciliation. What is that? It's when two people are separated, but they get brought back together. You get a couple that's broken up and they fighting. You want to be a minister of reconciliation. See if you can sit down and help them come back together. What Jesus did for me and my relationship with God, I was separated from God by my sins. Isaiah 59. God's ears not short that he can't hear, his hands not short that he can't say, but it's your sins that have separated between you and your God. And what Jesus did was reconcile me and God. Washed my sins away by his blood, brought me near to the Lord. I've been reconciled to God. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God says, now I've given all of you the ministry of reconciliation. 
right? We're reconciled to God and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation to go help others find reconciliation with the Lord. And so we've received reconciliation. We are now back in right standing, right relationship with the living God. Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sin for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. And so now we're going to bring this chapter to a close. He's comparing Adam and Jesus. Adam was the one, it was through Adam. He was the one man through whom death entered the world. Adam sinned. Some people think, well, that's not fair. I didn't sin. Adam sinned. And what Adam was, you guys, Adam was a representation of the human race. And he had that opportunity there in the garden and he blew it. And for those that think, you know, you would have done better, Adam was the best. It'd be like one illustration I heard and I thought it was so fitting when we send somebody to the Olympics from the U.S. We send our very best. I mean, this is the best we have to offer in this particular sport. So, you know, our basketball team, the U.S. basketball team, they put together the best team they can. They put all your top-notch, your Kobe's, your LeBron. They just get everybody they can get together. If that team goes and loses... We just couldn't do it. We don't have a better team. You know, we can't pull up a high school team or if that team can't get it done, then we just can't win. That's Adam. Adam was that representation for the human race. And he went and standing for the whole human race, tempted by sin, and he didn't make it. And so you wouldn't have made it. You wouldn't have made it neither. So if everybody said, I don't know if I was Adam, I think I would have not ate this. You know, you would have ate it. You might have ate it faster. You might have went and grabbed it and said, Eve, have you seen this thing? You know what I mean? You'd have ate it too. So through one man's sin entered, right? But now... Also through one man, right? The opportunity for forgiveness. Just if through one man death, through one man life. That one man is Jesus Christ. And just through one man sin entered the world. Now we've all sinned and we were born in sin and iniquity. We've been consumed in sin. You know, we were brought forth in sin. What Jesus allows now is all of the believing we could be born again. We can now enter into life through him, through one man. Through his death, we can all be made right. Uh, we can be forgiven. So we're going to see the word reigned about five times to the end of the chapter. First one is in verse 14. It said, nevertheless, death reigned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. And the idea is that it had predominance. It exercised the highest authority or control. Death reigned. That was the result of sin. Sin brought death. And death, when you think about a reigning champion, death was reigning over them through the sin that entered the world. Well, life is going to reign in those who have put their faith in Christ. And so look down at verse 15. It says, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense, many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. The free gift from God is not like what Adam did. This free gift is made available, and through the free gift, many are going to be forgiven. Many are going to receive this grace. Verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. The difference between what Adam brought and what Jesus brought. The end of what Adam brought is death. The end of what comes through Jesus is justification. Jesus died that we might be justified. That we might stand before him just as if we never sinned, though we all know we have. And so the result is different. Look at verse 17. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life 
through the one Jesus Christ. If you underline or highlight your Bible, I want you to underline that last part where it says the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now, death used to reign, used to be the reigning champion, used to be the predominant idea. When we were not saved, we were living in death. We were practicing death. We were headed to death. We were dead while we still live. God says, now life is supposed to reign in me. What Christ has made available to me, it doesn't just give me the hope of eternal life. It should reign in my life right now. Believers are supposed to be walking in a different kind of victory. There should be a victory that we walk in now in our life right now that we're experiencing life now. Life eternal, life in fullness, life everlasting, life abundantly right now through what Christ has made available to us. I'm no longer under death. I no longer walk in death. I'm connected to life. It says, again, the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. I think it's important to hear that verse in context. We hear that verse a lot. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And some people will get the idea from that than what it had. <laughs> I mean, we might well go in and see. I mean, where sin abounds, grace abounds. That means the more I sin, the more grace comes and God gets the glory, right? Wait, as we get to chapter six, which will be next week, Paul's going to answer that right away. Because there were some people that were going to be thinking that. That's not how it works. But... This is what you're talking about, right? What did the law do? The law just showed me how bad I am. The law made me aware of all my sins and all my shortcomings and all my mess ups. And God says, look, man, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. There was grace to overwhelm my sin issues. Sin abounded in my life. Grace abounded even more than the sin did. The law showed me my guilt, made me guilty before God, showed me that I wasn't good enough. God said, but grace abounded much more. My grace was bigger than your sin. So that's how come we can say anybody can be saved. But that guy was a murderer. Great, great candidate. He raped somebody. Great candidate. He was a thief for two. Great candidate. He lived in sin for 80 years and he'd done his deathbed. Great candidate, right? Where sin abounds, God's grace is bigger than that sin, right? There isn't anybody's sin so big where it's like, ooh, no, there's not enough grace for that one. Now you're going to die in your sin, you know? And we should be glad for that. So where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. This doesn't mean that I get saved and I'm under grace and now I just act a fool. Um, because I would have to question the person that thinks like that rather the Holy Spirit lives in you. Because God says the Holy Spirit lives in you. He works in you both to will and then to do for his good pleasure. So if you don't want to do the right thing and you don't do the right thing consistently, are you saved? Because the Holy Spirit is in you if you're saved. And he's inside saying, no, don't do that. So if you're a believer and you're sinning, you're miserable in sin. You're convicted before you get caught. right? If you only feel bad when you get caught, if it's always external, um, that's a bad sign too, right? There's an internal work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer keeps you in check. That's how come we become sanctified because the stuff that your conscience didn't bother you about when you weren't saved, you get saved and the Holy Spirit decides, oh, don't do that. Now pay for that, man. Pay for that. Pay for that. Mm -hmm. Say sorry. Say sorry. Be quiet right now. He'll be in there just stopping you from doing the wrong thing. You will do the wrong thing and say, I can't do that. And you go back and fix it. The Holy Spirit inside you working. Some of us got him working overtime. Triple time. He need a raise in some of y'all life. You know, he's working hard, you know, but the evidence that he's working is a good sign for us that at least God's on board. 
If there's none of that, right, if you just sin freely and looking over your shoulder, nobody catch you, you don't feel no kind of way about it, and you just go on, I would say you need to be afraid that you can just freely rebel, that there's no conviction. You need to ask God to come live inside you. And I don't say that in a condemning way. I say that, and that's a revealing sign. It's revealing that something's amiss. Um, and so, again, it says, as he lives in us, that's the work that he will be doing. The sin abounded. Grace will abound much more. Last verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so he just made these comparisons through the chapter. First, he showed us all the benefits of being justified by faith, how that as we're justified, we have peace with God. We have access to his grace. We stand in his grace. We have hope. Even in tribulations and crushings, they're beneficial because they're producing perseverance. Perseverance is producing character and character is producing hope. So even when it's all jacked up in our life, God is actually forming good things. Then he started walking us through how much he loved us when we didn't love him and used that as a catalyst to show us if I loved you that much, then how much more now that you belong to me if when you were in just rebellion and I died for you then how much more should we be able to stand and trust in the love of God now that we've received him as Lord and we're walking with him there should just be a confidence about that if you love me then I know you love me now you know and it's the cool thing with the Lord you guys it should really set us free right we've never been worthy of his love and we don't have to worry about working to be worthy of his love Right. The kind of love God loves you with, it works like this. God loves you, period. So you didn't earn it. So if you didn't earn it, you can't mess it up. If God loved you because you were being good, then you could stop being good and mess it up. If God loved you because you was really faithfully doing your Bible reading, but you took a week off. Now, he don't love you as much this week. God loved you because you stopped all your sinning, but you started back up last week. And I don't love you as much. But God said, look, I just love you, period. So then I can't mess that up. I never was worthy of his love. He just loved me, period, for nothing. And now, I mean, if I do good, I don't make him love me more. God just loved me, period. That's how come people know I know I can just come back to God, even though I done messed up. How do you know that? Because you know he loves you, period. You never was worthy of it, but we always are thankful for it. And we need to just rest in his goodness. Grace, his mercy, his love for us should set us free from religious behavior, should set us free from pharisaical attitudes, should set us free from trying to one-up one another. We're not in competition, family. Right, we're all trying to get to the same place. We're trying to bring each other along. We're not competing with one another. We're not trying to be more godly or holy than one another. We're all just trying to walk with the Lord. And there's a grace. And there should be a grace about us, how we speak and deal and treat and minister to one another around us. But lastly, the wrath, verse 9, how that we've been saved from his wrath. As we close this up and we look at the goodness of God, the mercy of God, and all this he does for us as believers, I pray the believers are ministered to today. I pray that you have greater hope, greater trust, greater faith, and you enjoy his grace in a greater way. But I also want to throw out the net and say, maybe you listen to all that and say, I think I'm still under wrath. Then you got to know that he's inviting you out of that. You know, there won't be anybody in hell, you guys, that didn't have to stomp all over the cross to get there. God is just saying many, many times, please come, come. Come receive forgiveness. Come receive mercy. Come and be forgiven. Come and be restored. Come and have relationship with me. I love you, sinner. He loves you. So it's a matter of coming. Bible says that why don't people come? Why don't people come to the Lord? When you look at all this, there's all these reasons people might give you. God says, you know why people don't come? It's because men love their darkness rather than light. And so if you're here, you've been loving darkness. I, the love of Christ, I beg you, lay that darkness down. That darkness is leading somewhere darker. And God says, people don't come to me because they love their darkness. 
rather than come to the light. We're to be exposed and forgiven and cleansed. Um, so if that's you, then you come today. You say, God, I receive you. He's already put forth his demonstration. He loves you. And whatever it is that you're into, you can be assured today from what you read, he loves you anyway. And he died for you. And he wants to forgive you. But he doesn't make us come. He invites us to come. Amen. You've been listening to Pastor Bill Buffington on a transforming word as he works his way through the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul dove into the mysteries of faith in this letter to the church in Rome, drawing on a rich history found in the Old Testament. He looks back to the faith of Abraham, which was counted to him as righteousness. This is what he had to say about the patriarch in chapter 4, verses 20 to 21. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Since we get to participate in the righteousness that comes through faith, let's set our hearts and minds on the power of God to do everything he had promised. We're so glad you decided to spend your time with us today. There's so much more that Paul gave us through the letter to the Romans, from deep theology to practical instructions on how to live. You won't want to miss a message, and we've made it easy for you to stay connected through Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. But we also have a free mobile app with access to our messages. To find out, head over to calvaryinglewood.org. Once again, that's calvaryinglewood.org. Look under the media tab to find a plethora of messages in our mobile app. While you're on the website, take a look around. We have a lot more available to you, including a daily Bible reading plan. Well, we're out of time for today, but we'll see you here next time, where we will again bring you a transforming word.